Well, we are continuing in our series. Uh, if you're just joining us this morning, you haven't been with us the last couple uh, weeks, we've been taking a break from Matthew. Normally we preach consecutively through a book, and we've been doing that with Matthew, but we're taking a break to talk about uh, the issue really of church membership, church membership. And you remember where we've been. We started, if we're going to talk about church membership, we need to understand what is the church, what is uh, the church. And so uh, that, that first page in your notes is probably getting pretty packed with definitions as we work through this, uh, because uh, we need to understand what is the church, and we need to understand what is church membership, and then uh, within that, and together with that, what are the ordinances, what is baptism, the Lord's Supper, and even what is discipline all about. So let's just review briefly what is the church. We have two definitions that go along with that. They're there in your notes. Remember that what we said is the universal church, we talked about this from Matthew 16, is the assembly of all new covenant members who are genuine disciples of Christ the King, who are citizens of the kingdom from heaven, and who are priests for God in the world, and who together form a temple for the display and enjoyment of the glory of God. That's the universal church. Uh, Jesus is building the universal church. It's, he's continuing to build it through time. It won't fully be manifested until he returns on the earth. So then how is the uh, universal church made manifest? How do you see it? Well, you see it in the local church. And that's our second definition of for what is the church. A local church is a group of Christians who assemble as an earthly embassy. It's really an embassy of that future kingdom uh, as an earthly embassy of Christ's heavenly kingdom to proclaim the good news and the commands of Christ the King to affirm one another as his citizens through the ordinances and to display God's own holiness and love through a unified and diverse people in all the world following the teaching and example of elders. I like that imagery, uh, and I think it's helpful when we think of the local church as an embassy. It is a temple, it is a priesthood, but it's an embassy. It is a representative of that future kingdom that will come. So we set that foundation for what is the church. And then last week, we asked the question, what is church membership then? What is church membership? And at a basic level, we could say this, a local church is its membership. We had that visual last week. We had the little circle uh, where there was an inside. We talked about this from Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5. There's an inside to the local church, and there's an outside. But the local church is composed of individuals, so we could really say the local church is its membership. But then what is that transaction? Uh, what, what is membership? And we gave this definition, should also be in your notes, Church membership is a church's affirmation and oversight of a Christian's profession of faith and discipleship, combined with the Christian's submission to the church and its oversight. So it's a, it's a covenant relationship where an individual is covenanting with a local church, and the local church is covenanting with that individual to oversee discipleship. Uh, we see that from, we saw that from Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, of a variety of other texts. And uh, like I said, I kind of introduced to you last week my own journey from church membership. Uh, I grew up uh, in a local church, a sound local church, preaching the gospel. Uh, I had to become a church member to serve in the church. But basically, and I told you this last week, I could only get to the point where I thought membership was a good idea. It's practical. It's pragmatic. Until, and this is where we're going this morning, 
or starting to go this morning, until I started seeing membership connected with the ordinances. And when we say that language, ordinances, or you might have heard the word sacraments, or whatever you want to call them, baptism and the Lord's Supper, until I started seeing membership connected with those realities, I, I, the farthest I could get was membership is a good idea. And we do see that. We do see membership implied, like we talked about last week. Um, there's an inside, there's an outside, so there must be a boundary. But it takes on greater significance when you connect it with what God is doing in the ordinances. Uh, remember what we said last week, God is very interested in having a distinct, definable, and visible people. Remember those three words, distinct, definable, and visible people. He was interested in it in the Old Testament. He's interested in it in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, that shift from Old Covenant to New Covenant. He's interested in having a distinct and definable and visible people. And you might ask the question, well, how does the membership, how does the local embassy show up? How does it become visible? Well, it becomes visible through the ordinances. And that's where we're going over the next couple of weeks. We're going to talk about baptism this morning, and we're going to talk about the Lord's Supper the next week. But really, as an overarching thing, why, why are we going there? Well, we're going there because that's where the membership is identified. That's where the membership is identified. So to continue with our theme of questions uh, that we've been kind of setting up as we've been walking through this series, our big question for this morning is this, how are baptism and membership connected? How are baptism and membership connected? And so where we start this morning, we have two points, and where we're going to start is this. Baptism is the visible new covenant entry marker. Uh, that's the kind of the summary of where we're going, and I want to prove that to you from the scriptures. Baptism is the visible new covenant entry marker. Remember what we said about the universal church. The universal church is the assembly of new covenant believers. Where everyone knows the Lord, the local church is an embassy of that assembly. And so we want to see baptism is the visible new covenant entry marker. Now, to, to start to build a case for that, let's remember Matthew. We've been kind of launching from Matthew the last few weeks. Remember Matthew 16, where we got this fundamental reality where uh, Peter confesses Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and then Jesus says, you are Peter, you're a stone, and on this bedrock, I think speaking of himself as the cornerstone, Peter is a stone, and then the rest of the apostles, all is this foundation for the universal church He's going to build his church. He's going to build his church out of confessors like Peter, those who confess that Jesus is the Christ, those who repent and entrust themselves to Christ. Those are the people who are entering the new covenant. They are true disciples. And remember what, what, what uh, Jesus said to Peter. He said, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And then he defined this, this what is that? What is this uh, understanding of the keys? Well, he defined it in terms of this language of binding and loosing. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And if you're still struggling with that binding and loosing language, you, you shouldn't feel bad because it's, it's a little bit of a hard concept. But basically what we said is this, that binding and loosing language is connected uh, with essentially what Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount. 
You can think of it this way. Uh, Carol Yates gave me a good uh, illustration this week, and I thank her for it. Uh, remember we use the language of a contract, and we say a contract is binding? Don't we use that language? That's the same sort of thing what we mean by binding and loosing, except instead of a contract, we're talking about what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? You see, to enter in as a disciple, you repent of your sins and your allegiance to self, and you entrust yourself to Christ, but that has implications for your whole life, which is what Jesus spelled out in the Sermon on the Mount. If you're going to live as a disciple of Jesus, if you're going to make it to the end of life, to the narrow gate into the kingdom of heaven and not in the broad gate to Hades, to, the, uh, to death, to eternal death and destruction, well, what is your life going to look like? Because Jesus is going to change you. It looks like the Sermon on the Mount. And so really you could think of that binding and loosing language as, um, as saying, uh, here's what it looks like to be a disciple. You're going to live in this way or uh, uh, no, you, uh, that's, this commandment is binding on you, or no, this isn't binding on you. It's loosed from you. That's what we mean by binding and loosing. But what's amazing is Jesus has that authority, and then he transfers that authority. It's a stewardship authority to the apostles. Uh, and how do we see that authority manifested? We see that authority manifested in the New Testament. They write the scriptures, and what do those scriptures tell us? Here's what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. We live with him. Uh, let us show you what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. They exercise the authority of the keys. They bound and they loosed. But even more amazingly, and this is where we talked about last week, Matthew 18 shows that that authority, the authority of the keys is even given to the local church. The local church as an assembly. The local church as an assembly, as an embassy. It is a stewardship authority. It is not a willy-nilly authority that uh, we can just say whatever and God's going to back it. But no, if we are operating as stewards in line with what Jesus taught, in line with the scriptures, then with great prayer we can make pronouncements on behalf of heaven, in certain situations, especially in the context of things like discipline. Remember, Matthew 18 talks about discipline. You're claiming to follow Christ, but you're not living like it. And as representatives, as an assembly representing Jesus, we are saying that you're not walking as you should. We're disciplining you. But the authority to discipline is also the authority to affirm. It goes both ways. The authority to discipline is the authority to affirm. And that authority to affirm someone as a disciple of Jesus is what we mean when we talk about church membership. But that still doesn't ask, answer the question, how do you go from the outside of the church to the inside? How do you, go, how do you cross the boundary of membership? And the answer to that question is baptism. It's baptism. We can even look in Matthew, since that's where we've been kind of launching, and we can see that this is what Jesus intended. So we've seen Matthew 16, we've seen Matthew 18, turn to the very end, Matthew 28. We go here often, and rightly so, because this is Jesus' commission for his church. Remember what he said, I'm going to build my church, I'm going to build my assembly, uh, built up of people. How is he going to do that? Matthew 28:16 Just to get a little context, we see reread this. 
Now, the 11 disciples, a.k.a. the foundation of the church, went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And he's essentially telling them, here's how I'm building my church. Make disciples. And we've already seen in Matthew, how do you become a disciple? You become a disciple through repentance, through entrusting yourself to Christ, and following him with your whole life. That's what it means to be a disciple. But here what we see is, well, how do you, how do, you do that? How do you make a disciple? By baptizing them and by teaching them. If you were to boil down everything we do, it's baptizing and teaching. Baptizing, why? Because that is the initial identification of someone coming into the church. They're a new stone. They're a confessor. They've repented and entrusted themselves to Christ already, but they're a confessor coming into the church. Baptizing them into the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. We baptize into the name, the name of God, the triune God, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When we do baptize, what we're saying is this individual is brought into the ownership of God, the ownership of Christ. You remember in Matthew 18, it even used that idea of the name. Uh, when two or three are gathered into my name, the assembly is gathered in the name of Jesus. He's put his name on them. Well, what's going on in baptism is the name, uh, the name of God is being put in a visible way on a new disciple. And then subsequent to that, of course, there's teaching to observe all that Jesus commanded because discipleship is not just about repentance and faith, but it's a tr true repentance and faith that results in obedience to Jesus. Notice here, who is doing the baptizing? It's the church. It's the church. The 11 disciples, that foundation of the church, is the one baptizing. Baptism is not only an individual's profession of faith, it is very much that, but it is a church's affirmation of that individual's faith. It's a two-way thing. It's what we mean when we talk about membership. Uh, here's an individual professing faith, but who's got to do the baptizing? It's the church, and the church is affirming that individual's faith by all that they can see. So that's the basics of what we see. If you want to cross the boundary of membership into the church, well, Jesus has given a visible sign of doing that, and it is the waters of baptism. That's the basics, and we even see it in Matthew. But we can see more in the rest of the New Testament of the theology of baptism. Turn to Romans 6, and you're like, why is it? Why is it about baptism? Why is this What's such the big deal about it? Jesus commanded it. Yes, we see that and we understand that. But why? Why baptism? Why immersion into water? 
And we get some more uh, depiction of that in the New Testament. So Romans 6, Romans 6, uh, Paul lays out the gospel in Romans, and he lays out, uh, you're justified by faith alone, uh, chapters 1 through 5. I'm painting with a broad brushstroke, but that's, that's essentially what he does. And then he does this in chapter 6. You've just been justified by faith alone. Chapter 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. Meaning, it's that same thing of discipleship. It's not just professing faith, it's a whole life that's now lived for God. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In other words, what Paul is telling us here, he's giving us the, 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 the depiction of what baptism symbolizes. When you, when someone uh, professes faith in Christ and they become baptized, what is happening? They are being immersed into the death of Christ. What usually happens when you get immersed in the water and you stay there for a while? You die. You drowned, right? But that's the depiction. You are being buried with Christ and dying in union with Christ to your sin because Christ died for you on the cross. And, but Christ didn't just stay dead. He rose from the dead to give you new spiritual life, and ultimately new physical life in the new heavens and the new earth. And baptism is symbolizing your union with Christ. It is saying, I am being immersed into Christ, the only one who can uh, deal with my sin. He died for my sin. And if I brought into union with him, I also died to sin. But I also not only die with him, I'm also raised with him. That's why we immerse in water is because of that reality. It symbolizes our union with Christ, with his death and resurrection. It is symbolizing our being bound with Christ. We are bound to Christ. uh, We are bound to Christ through repentance and faith, through his death and resurrection, and baptized and portrays that reality. Baptism portrays that reality. We can add a little bit more to this. Turn over to Colossians. Paul says it is basically the same thing in another way in Colossians. Colossians 2, 11. Colossians 2, 11. In him, that's Christ, also, in him also, you were circumcised. Now, pause right there. We talked about circumcision already. Remember, circumcision was the sign of entering the Abrahamic covenant. It was the entry marker for you coming into uh, the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, But even more so, remember that passage we read last week in Exodus 12, talking about the Passover. Suppose you're hanging around Israel and you're like, yeah, I want to, this God is among you. I want to join you or uh, I want to partake in the Passover. What did you have to do? You had to become circumcised to essentially become part of Israel, the old covenant assembly. Okay, so just to remind you of that, because Paul is drawing on that imagery. In him also, you were circumcised 
with a circumcision made without hands. Now, all of a sudden, he just switched. See, the reality in the Old Covenant was you had Israel as this people, but not everyone in Israel actually entrusted themselves to God. So you had the actual people who knew God. They were circumcised in heart. That language gets used in the Old uh, Testament. Uh, Jews, you've got an external circumcision, but you need also a circumcision of the heart, a circumcision made without hands, which ultimately leads to the promise of the new covenant, which says, yeah, I'm going to give you a new heart so that it's not just that you've got a circle inside a circle, you've got everyone in that community, everyone in the new covenant community knowing God. Because everyone in the new covenant community will have a circumcision of heart, a circumcision made without hands, which is what Paul is talking about here. In him, you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh, your old nature, by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So Paul is drawing an analogy. He's drawing an analogy between the uh, baptism and circumcision. He's not saying baptism replaces circumcision. He's saying there's an analogy between the two. He's saying that just like baptism was the old covenant entry marker, like if you're a foreigner and you want to be brought into that, you had to be circumcised. He's saying, no, 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 we're not doing that. But there is a reality that baptism is the new covenant entry marker. Because why? He says it because you're being identified with Christ in his death and his resurrection. You're going down into the waters of death and you're being brought up and you're showing your union with Christ. You're showing your union with Christ. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So you repent, you entrust yourself to Christ, you're united with him by faith, and then you get baptized to show I am part of the new covenant people. I am part of the new covenant people. My heart has been circumcised by what Christ did on the cross, and I am part of the new covenant people. Put it this way, the New Testament does not know of, on, um, uh, the, uh, of an unbaptized believer. It doesn't exist. Now you're going to say, well, the thief on the cross. Of course, he's the exception. But the in general... Right? In general, it's assumed that you're going to be baptized because that's what Jesus said in Matthew 28. If you want to be a disciple, you're going to be baptized. Galatians 3.26 says the same thing. Galatians 3.26 and 27 says this. For in Christ Jesus, every time you see that little preposition in, in him, in Christ Jesus, that's symbolizing our union with Christ. More often than not, that's what it's communicating. For in Christ Jesus, our union with Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. For 
as many as you were baptized into Christ, you're immersed with him, you're united with him through faith, have put on Christ. In other words, the baptism portrays your immersion into Christ, your your new life. You've put on Christ. You've died to your old self. You've put on Christ. And so God sees you through the lens of Christ. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12. We looked at 1 Corinthians 12 last week. We talked about the members, the members of the body. When we're talking about membership, yeah, it's the formal commitment, but it's also membership in terms of a body, a body loving one another, serving one another, encouraging one another. But if you noticed at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 12, right before he, or just at the beginning of jumping into that metaphor, he says this, 1 Corinthians 12, 12, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit or with one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of the one spirit. Baptism is the entry marker into the new covenant. Now you might say for a minute, Wait a minute. Wait a minute. It says here, baptism by the Spirit. And that's true. There is a reality in the, New, uh, in the New Testament that talks about how are you brought into the New Covenant community. Ultimately, it starts with the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who regenerates you, who enables you to have faith and to repent and have faith in Christ. And through that action, which happens simultaneously, you are brought into the universal church in a spiritual way, okay? So you can distinguish spiritual baptism versus water baptism, but they're not designed to be separated in the sense that you think of one without the other. In other words, when Paul's writing 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13, or Galatians 3, 26 through 27, or any of these other passages— when they use the language of baptism, they're like, if you were to ask him, now, are you talking about water baptism or are you talking about spiritual baptism? He'd be like, what are you talking about? Because one points to the other. One points to the other. That's the reality. You can distinguish them, but you can't separate them. You can distinguish them, but you can't separate them. In fact, when you walk through the book of Acts, when you walk through the book of Acts, there is great flexibility in talking about how one is converted, how one is brought into union with Christ. Basically, you could think of as you walk through Acts, there's repentance, faith, baptism, forgiveness, and the giving of the Spirit. Five elements. Repentance, faith, baptism, forgiveness, uh, and the Spirit. But what tends to happen is that Luke, Luke will speak of one as the marker for all the rest. So he'll talk about repentance, and then baptism, and then forgiveness, and then the Spirit. Sometimes he'll just talk about faith and baptism. Sometimes he'll just talk about repentance and forgiveness. Sometimes he'll talk about baptism and the Spirit. Sometimes he'll talk about uh, baptism, uh, the Spirit first, then baptism. Sometimes he'll talk about baptism first, then forgiveness. Sometimes he'll talk about baptism and then the Spirit. Sometimes he'll talk about uh, baptism. Sometimes he'll talk about baptism and then the Spirit. But he, what is he doing? He's saying, Salvation is a package deal. Conversion is a package deal. It is based in repentance and faith, absolutely. And yet it's a package deal where all of these things will be present and we can refer to one of these things as a stand-in for all 
the rest, which is why baptism, because it portrays union with Christ and resurrection with him, can be a stand-in for the whole package, can be a stand-in for the whole package. Water baptism points to the reality of spirit baptism. You could put it this way, water baptism is where your faith goes public. That's a phrase that Bobby Jameson uses in his book, Going Public, Um, but it's really true. Jesus doesn't want people who just confess in their hearts, yes, you are my Lord, and then not go public. Then the question is, well, is Jesus really your Lord? Because if he's your Lord, you're going to proclaim it. You're going to go public with your faith in the waters of baptism. Look back at Acts 2.37 through 42, which Jim read for us earlier, and you see this, this reality. Acts 2.37. So this is right after Peter gives his famous sermon at Pentecost. So he's preaching, and then we get the end in verse 37. Now when they heard this, the people he's preaching to, and he proclaims the gospel to them, and he says this. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. It's a package deal. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Now, catch this. So those who received his word were baptized. Let's just shorthand the whole thing. They had repentance. They had faith. They received the Spirit. They were baptized. Let's just shorthand the whole thing. They were received the word and were baptized, because that's the visible mark. And were added that day about 3,000 souls. Added to what? The church. Baptism is the entryway into church membership. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. How do you enter the fellowship? You enter it through the waters of baptism. You can think about it like this. Um, If you've been to a wedding ceremony, at one point during the ceremony, there's when you put the rings on the finger, right? Uh, You make vows. There's a whole package, right? When do you become married? It's a whole pack. It's a whole ordeal, right? You have the ceremony. You have vows. You have all of these things being said. But at some point during the ceremony, the bride and the groom put the wedding ring on the finger. Why is that? To make marriage go public, to make marriage visible to a watching world. Or you can think about it like this. Uh, um, suppose you, you join uh, the military. Suppose you join the military and you sign on the dotted line. Um, you sign up for your contract. You swear the oath of allegiance. And then they're like, okay, here's your uniform. Put it on. Like, nah, I don't need a uniform. I signed on the lotted line. I'm good to go. There's something seriously wrong. There's something seriously wrong with a soldier who doesn't put on the uniform or a bride or a groom who doesn't put the wedding ring on their finger because it's where something substantial becomes visible. It's marked out. Does the wedding ring make me married? I'm not married. No, of course not. But it symbolizes the marriage I do have. Right? It portrays it in a substantial way. 
So if we were to summarize this up, and this is from uh, def another definition. I, I steal definitions all over the place. Sometimes I make my own, but I steal them all over the place. This is from a little book called Understanding Baptism. It's also by Bobby Jameson. Remember, he's the one that wrote Going Public. Going Public's like this thick. This one's like nice and manageable, right? But this is what we have. If someone's interested in being baptized here at Faith Bible Church, we have them read this because it's a nice little summary. And the definition that should be on the screen, I thought I had some definitions on the screen, but the definition uh, that he gives, and I really like it, so I'll read it very, very, very slow. Um, so you might have to skip through a few there, Kevin. But uh, the, uh, the, the definition that he gives is this. Baptism is a church's act of affirming and portraying a believer's union with Christ by immersing him or her in water and a believer's act of publicly committing him or herself to Christ and his people, thereby uniting a believer to the church and marking off him or her from the world. Let's read it again. Good, it's up there. Baptism is a church's act, so it's not just an individual's act. It's a church's act. We get that from Matthew 28. We get that from Acts. It's a church's act of affirming and portraying a believer's union with Christ, dead with Christ, united with Christ, by immersing him or her in water, and a believer's act of publicly committing him or herself to Christ and his people, thereby uniting a believer to the church and marking off him or her from the world. It's a, both an individual's act and a church's act, and for what purpose? To make faith go public, to make someone visible, to make them show up on the radar of the world. And it goes along with that idea of an embassy, right? We, as a local church, are an embassy of Christ's future kingdom. We have been given authority by Christ, a stewardship authority, to affirm or remove affirmation of someone's discipleship. And so you get converted, you come to a local church to be baptized, and what is the local church doing? They're essentially issuing you a passport or stamping your passport, depending on how you want to think about that but they're issuing you a passport and saying, yeah, we see, by all that we can see, you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Just like if you were in Switzerland and you're an American, it's like, ah, I need a passport, my passport expired. You go to the U.S. Embassy and say, can you affirm my citizenship? And they do, and they issue you a passport. You can think about it like this. Baptism joins one to many. I think the next slide has our little visual again. Remember, there's an inside and an outside to the local church. A local church is its membership. The boundary is membership. How do you get in? You get in through baptism. You get in through baptism. Baptism is the means that Christ himself has given us to affirm someone's citizenship. Baptism joins one to many. Now, here's the caveat in all of this. The church can get it wrong. Church can get it wrong. I think Acts 8 is an example of that. You've got Simon the magician. He says he believed and was baptized, and yet it seems like at the end of that exchange, he doesn't know God. So the mere act of baptizing, mere act of dunking someone in water does nothing. I can dunk you in water, but it does nothing if there's not true repentance and faith. This is all based on repentance and faith. 
But if you have repentance and faith, you ought to be baptized because you ought to bring your faith public and show your allegiance to Christ the Lord and to his people. You're united with Christ, which inherently means you're united with his people. So that, that's the basics, right? The baptism is the new, country, new covenant uh, entry marker. But there's more to it even than that. Now, if you left today with just that, that the baptism is the new covenant entry marker, good. But there's so much more. It is epic, which leads us to our second point. Baptism is the visible ordination of a temple priest. Remember how we said that the, the universal church is it's an assembly of people, and those people are priests, but they're also the temple all in one? Well, baptism is the visible ordination of a temple priest. Now, I want to prove that to you by walking through the scriptures in a very broad way. You see, all of the scriptures talk about baptism. Genesis to Revelation, there is a pattern that talks about baptism. Now, how do I know that? Let me give you a couple clues. We're not going to read these texts. You can read them later. You can check up on me later. But 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22, Peter says this, um, God saved people, eight people, uh, in an ark through a flood. Baptism, which now corresponds to this, now saves you. So Peter is saying, hey, let me talk to you about baptism, but let me point you back to the Old Testament. Let me point you back to Noah. Paul does something similar. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4, he says, um, okay, uh, now remember the Israelites, and uh, the Israelites, they went through the Red Sea, and they were baptized into Moses through the Red Sea. So both Peter and Paul are pointing us back to the Old Testament. Isn't it amazing how many things in Scripture, uh, you, the New Testament uh, points back to the Old Testament? It's all there. Uh, the foundations, anyway. It's all part of the same story. And baptism is no exception. So I'm going to walk you through, briefly, this pattern that we see. We're going to go back to creation. You remember in creation, first few verses of Genesis, what happens? God creates the heavens and the earth. The waters were over the earth, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then God does what? He, out of those waters, he brings a new creation. And out of that um, new creation, we have Adam and Eve as kings and priests. So we have that basic pattern. What happens in the flood? So fast forward, we go to the flood, the waters cover everything again. It's pointed to as a decreation, the waters of judgment because of human sin. The waters cover everything again. Things are decreated, and then the waters recede, and there's what? A new creation. Who's the new high priest? It's Noah. Noah is given the same basic charge that Adam was. Fast forward again to the Exodus. Uh, Paul pointed us here, right? Uh, if we go back to Exodus, people of Israel, uh, we've got the, the Exodus happening. They get to the Red Sea. And God opens the Red Sea. And what happens? The Israelites pass through the waters safely. They're waters of salvation for them, but also waters of judgment for Egypt. And there's a new creation that happens. The new creation of what? The new creation of a nation. And who's the priest? Israel. Israel is a priestly nation at Mount Sinai. 
And at Mount Sinai, it introduced a priesthood. And if you, uh, in the priesthood, Exodus 29, it talks about when you ordain a new high priest, give him a whole body washing in this bronze basin. Why? Because what you're portraying is waters of judgment and salvation bringing about a new creation. The, the tabernacle and the temple had Edenic imagery in it. Why? Because that's what we're trying to get back to, the creation and dwelling in God's presence. So you've got the high priest being washed, brought in so he can minister in this new creation, in a sense, the model of the new creation in the temple or the tabernacle. And of course, Aaron or one of his sons is the high priest. It's the same exact pattern. Even on the Day of Atonement, which would happen once a year, the high priest would have to go through the whole body washing again. Why? Because it's portraying that same reality. You're saved through the waters of God's judgment, and you're able to minister as a priest in the new creation. Let's uh, fast forward to the conquest, to Joshua. What happens with Joshua? They're about to go into the promised land, and they're like, they come up to the Jordan, and uh, oh, we can't go through. And then the, the author intentionally links the episode back to what happened at the Red Sea. And what happens? The nation of Israel goes through the waters of judgment and salvation. They were waters of salvation for Israel, but waters of judgment for the Canaanites because they've got an invading army now. What's the new creation? It's the promised land being given to Israel as a priestly nation. Let's fast forward to the New Testament. Let's go to the baptism of John. We looked at this a few months ago in Matthew 3. And remember what John, he's this forerunner for Christ. What is he saying? God is coming. He's going to bring about the second exodus. And he's going to deal with sin to bring you out and rescue you. Because that's why you guys went into exile to begin with. So people come to the Jordan in the wilderness and they repent, and then they submit to water baptism to express repentance because they're saying, we're going to go through the waters of God's judgment, and we need to be saved through that. We are saved through repentance and faith. And what it was supposed to picture is Israel's going out, and they're, they're, they're saying, yes, we need cleansing from our sin. We need to be rescued by God and to be the renewed Israel, the new creation of a renewed Israel because Israel is supposed to be a priestly nation. And then within that, you have the baptism of Jesus. He undergoes this baptism. He goes through the waters of judgment, but is uh, not only saved, but affirmed. And remember what happens. He comes up out of the waters, and a dove, like a spirit, like, eh, that sounds familiar, coming over Jesus, because it's the same pattern. He's the one who's going to actualize all righteousness for his people. He's the one who's going to lead the second exodus, and Jesus is the ultimate high priest. It's the same exact pattern given by God through creation again and again and again. He brings his new creation after cleansing, after the waters of judgment. He brings through the waters of judgment, through salvation, and he rescues a priestly people to minister to him. Which leads us right into Hebrews. Because we see that same reality. We've been talking about Hebrews a bunch in our equipping hour, talking about holiness. 
We didn't quite get to this passage today, but, but what we see in Hebrews, Hebrews says Jesus is the ultimate high priest. He's not just bringing us into a copy of the temple. He's bringing us into the real holy of holies. He's the ultimate high priest. He's gone ahead as a forerunner, and he's bringing his people along. The call in Hebrews is to draw near. Only the high priest could draw near to the holy of holies once a year, but Jesus is saying after he's accomplished his redemption, he's call, the call in Hebrews is draw near, come near, draw near to the Holy of Holies. Listen to Hebrews 10, Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. It's toward the end of the book and the author's making an appeal. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What do you think he's talking about? He's talking about the ordination ceremony for a high priest. He's talking about Jesus is the ultimate high priest. He's gone into the Holy of Holies as a, as a forerunner, and he's calling his brothers and sisters, draw near, draw near. Only priests get to draw near into the Holy of Holies. So you need to go through the ordination ceremony of a priest. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of son, but encouraging one another, and all the means, all the more as you see the day drawing near. And here's the reality. Hebrews speaks to it, and the rest of the scriptures speak to it. You're not like the one singular high priest. Jesus is the high priest. You're not like a singular isolated priest. That doesn't work. You need the whole body of priests. In the old covenant, there was only a select group that were priests that ministered to the whole assembly. But in the new covenant, we're all priests. I'm not the priest, for sure. We're all priests together, brought in, ministering to one another and offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And we're drawing near to the ultimate holy of holies. And we display our ordination of priests through the waters of baptism. So when you come to the waters of baptism, you're passing through the waters of judgment and salvation. God brings you through those waters of judgment for salvation. It's ultimately based on repentance and faith. And like Paul says, if anyone's in Christ, he's what? A new creation, new spiritual life, and ultimately resurrection life. And the church is the priestly people with Jesus Christ as our great high priest. Baptism is the public display of priestly ordination in the local church. Now, the action is not salvific. I can't say that strongly enough. Uh, dunking in water does nothing to you. The action is not salvific, but it portrays salvific realities, and it's important. Just like the wedding ring, just like putting on the uniform. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Let's, let's draw some conclusions. Let's draw some implications from this. When we baptize as a church, 
It is an individual profession and, don't forget the and, and a church affirmation of membership. That's what we're doing in baptism. We're affirming someone as a member of the new covenant, which means we're automatically bringing them into membership in our local church. That's why if someone wants to talk to me about being baptized, great, but I'm also going to talk to you about membership because I'm not going to baptize you unless you want to become a member of this local church. I'm affirming you as a new covenant member, therefore I want you in as a member in this local church. Now, you might come to this local church and you might say, well, do you need to be baptized again when you transfer your membership? So I came down from Spokane to here, and I was already baptized up there. Do I need to be baptized again to be part of this local church? No, of course not. That's where the language of embassy comes in, right? The embassy of FBC Spokane stamped my passport, and I came here, and you affirmed me all, and you stamped my passport of citizenship. So I don't need to be baptized again long as the church you got baptized in was faithfully preaching the gospel. Here's another implication. Only a local church ought to baptize. Only a local church ought to baptize. Not camps, not individuals, not schools, only the local church. Because only to the local church has Jesus given the stewardship authority of affirming discipleship. Here's another reality. We see baptism is ordinary and serious. It's ordinary and it's serious, just like a wedding ring. Jesus desires every disciple be baptized, Matthew 28. But if that's happening, then the church is affirming that individual, which means that individual is being brought into the church, which by extension means that Jesus means that he wants every disciple committed to a local church. You see how that works. It's ordinary in the sense that we're just dunking someone in water, but it's serious because of all that it portrays in our union with Christ and all that it has portrayed from Genesis to Revelation. You're going public with your faith. You're going on record, which is what Jesus... God and Jesus are interested in a visible, distinct, definable people. It's part of displaying the priesthood, the temple of the local church. It's part of being a beacon as a people to a watching world. We want to be visible. We want to be a beacon to a watching world. We want to be a distinct embassy for Christ. So be baptized and we're going to spend that time. We're going to investigate your faith and your discipleship because we're talking about taking responsibility for you as a member. We're taking responsibility for you. You're submitting to us. It's a partnership where we work together for God's glory. So the call is this. Be baptized if you haven't. Be baptized if you haven't. Now I'm going to say this. Infant baptism is not baptism. I'll just come out and say it. I was infant baptized, believe it or not, my parents were going to a Lutheran church, and I was, I was sprinkled as a baby, but that wasn't baptism. Because, because why? What is the church, the new covenant community? How do you get into the new covenant community? Repentance and faith. Israel, in, 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 you circumcised an infant. Why? Right? To bring them into that covenant. But that doesn't necessarily mean they had faith. 
In the new covenant, it's different. Everyone knows the Lord. And how do you know the Lord? Through repentance and faith, things of which an infant is incapable. So if you were sprinkled, dunked, as an infant, like I was, you ought to be truly baptized, subsequent to regeneration, repentance, and faith. Now, here's another view of that. Maybe you were brought up in the church, and maybe you got baptized when you were seven. You were dunked, and the church dunked you when you were seven, but then you later figure out, actually, I didn't have faith. Actually, I didn't repent and trust myself to Christ. Then that wasn't actually baptism, even though the church did it. It shouldn't have. But what do you do? You say, all right, I have repentance and faith. I need to be baptized. My faith needs to go public. I think that was Bailey's story when we baptized her. She had, she'd been baptized or she'd been dunked. You could, we could phrase it that way. She'd been dunked. But then she's like, actually, I came to know the Lord when I was, I forget the age, 13 or whatever. And so we baptized her because her faith went public. Here's a great story. This happened in Spokane. When our, the elders up there were going through issues of baptism and the Lord's Supper, one of our elders started thinking, and he's like, you know, I don't think I've ever been baptized. Someone who had been uh, genuinely repented and entrusted themselves to Christ had been walking with the Lord for 30, or however many years, decades, right? And he's like, I don't think I was ever baptized. So what did he do? He got baptized. An elder in the church got in the baptismal and said, you know, here's my story. Here's how the Lord changed me. And it was immensely encouraging. It was immensely encouraging. It's never too late to obey. Now, in all of this, as we conclude, and, and this holds true for anything we've talked about, this is a lot of stuff I'm throwing at you, right? It took me a couple years to process through this, to work through this. It's not easy, and I get that. So I hope as we talk through these things that if you have questions, come talk to me afterwards. Come talk to uh, Steve. Come talk to Jim. Uh, send me an email. Give me a phone call. Give me a text. Ask questions. Talk to us because this is serious stuff. Now, why do we take this stuff so seriously? Because it's the means that Christ himself has given to give the structure, the visible structure of his church. And like we said last week, we want to think about the church the way Jesus does. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your work. We thank you for saving us. Lord, it, it, all of it is just about portraying our union with you through faith and repentance. We thank you for your sacrifice that has not only cleansed us, it's sanctified us, it's brought us into the realm of being priests. And Lord, we thank you for the, the means of going public in the waters of baptism. I pray that if there are any here who don't know you, that they would respond in repentance and faith today. Lord, I pray that if there are any who haven't been baptized, that you would convict them and draw them because they want to, because they want to honor you, not out of guilt, but out of a desire to please you, that they would be baptized. Lord, help us as a body, as a membership, to function in the way you want us to, to love one another, to serve one another, to honor you with our lives. Help us to call one another out on sin when we are drifting, 
guard us from drifting. Help us to persevere to the end, to see you, to know you, to draw near into the Holy of Holies, to bask in your presence. Lord, that is our greatest desire. We pray that you would help us to make it to the end and help us to help one another as a church to do so. We pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.